I will be reading verses 32 through 45. Here, for this is the word of the Lord. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him, and spit on him, and flog him, and kill him. And after three days he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand, and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand, or at my left, is not mine to grant but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to become indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Thanks be to God for his holy word. May he bless the reading and preaching of his word this morning. If you have been following in Mark, you would have noticed that Jesus is dealing with a rough group. He has been walking with disciples who kept getting it wrong. This ought to encourage us. Because it goes to show that God works in, with, and through people such as you and me. Every time the disciples seem to take one step forward, they take two steps back. If we were honest with ourselves, this would describe our own walk with Christ. But on the part of Christ, this reveals to us his patience and long-suffering for sinners who are messed up and how he uses messed up individuals such as ourselves for his purposes. While in the meantime, he transforms us. Here, the disciples get it wrong again. They thought following Jesus was going to be a bed of roses and feasting. Since these disciples were walking with the king, they were looking forward to when they too would be treated as royalty. They had worldly ideas about status and privilege. They wanted to act like, look like, and sound like the world. 
How often does the church go in this direction? When we want to act like, look like, and sound like the world. And how often do Christians, in wanting to be liked by the world, fall for the glitz and the glamour, and for the sake of being liked, we compromise and we end up going in the opposite direction that we should be going. But Jesus had to correct their notions time and time again, here especially, that they are not to be like the world. Now, we must also remember that we often act like, look like, and even sound like the world because the world is in us. And in our conversion, we're only at the beginning of our radical renewing of the mind, which Jesus calls his disciples to hear. And to do this, he had to describe in a little more detail his journey forward or his place in the world before He tells them where their place is to be. At this point, Jesus is making his way from Judea, uh, beyond the Jordan, up toward Jerusalem. Remember, Jerusalem is on an elevated plateau, 2,500 feet above sea level. And for the Jewish people, to make this journey of pilgrimage, it is upward toward Jerusalem. Now, this is where, the place where the people of God meet with God because that is where the temple is. We see this throughout the Psalms, especially in the Psalms of Ascent. And at this time, it would be especially true because there would have been crowds uh, walking along with them, making their pilgrimage up to Jerusalem for Passover. But the nature of, of Jesus' pilgrimage would be different. He will be going up to offer worship But his act of worship would be not giving an animal sacrifice, but the giving of himself as a sacrifice once and for all for sinners in order to finish his work. So Jesus, as Isaiah 50 verse 7 says, Jesus sets his face like a flint up this mountain, meaning he was determined to get to Jerusalem to finish his work. His face was looking forward to the cross at Mount Calvary. He was walking straight to his death, which is something that we would all try to avoid at all costs. He was so determined that he was walking ahead of them. He had to do his Father's will, and his radical determination left his disciples amazed. And the others who followed were terrified. They were amazed at his focus, and the crowd that followed were terrified of what was going on because something was different. The mood has changed. And the all-consuming question would have been, what was going to happen to Jesus in Jerusalem? Well, he told them twice what was going to happen. But according to Mark's account, he will get into a little more detail. So for a third time, Jesus took the twelve aside as they were walking and told them, See, we're going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over. Now in case you haven't been here for the series in Mark, the Son of Man is a title that Jesus uses for himself alone. Now this is taken from the Son of Man of Daniel chapter 7, who is described as a divine and human figure. 
He is described as a king or prince who will share in the same authority as God. So for the disciples, this would have been an oxymoron. The divine king is to be delivered over? To whom? So you're saying uh, the king of Israel, the Messiah we have been waiting for, who has the power and authority of God, is going to be delivered over as a king who has just been overthrown in a coup d'etat? You must be kidding me. That can't be. Now the ironic thing is how he will be delivered over. First, he will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes by Judas Iscariot. That's one of the disciples who is walking with them at this moment in our text. And the chief priests and scribes will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. That is another way of uh, speaking of the Romans. The Jewish leaders had the power to condemn him, but they couldn't put him to death under Roman occupation. Then Pilate will deliver him over to the Roman soldiers who will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and ultimately kill him. Now their Messiah, the coming king, for the Jews, for this king to be delivered over to the Gentiles was unthinkable. It was unthinkable. Because Jesus was not only the Lamb of God, but he was also considered to be the scapegoat. The scapegoat, as we find in Leviticus 16. The scapegoat was used to transfer the sins of the people over to, and he will be sent out of the camp into outer darkness. Right? For the Jews, this is what, is, what it means to be delivered over to the Gentiles. He was sent outside of the camp, outside of the presence of God in the temple, into the outer darkness of the Gentile world. As the author of Hebrews says, Jesus suffered outside the temple gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. This does not sound like what is described of the Son of Man in Daniel 7. It actually sounds like the suffering servant of Isaiah. And he was determined to get this show on the road, and yet he was still teaching his disciples. And he was not only teaching them that this is the way of salvation, but also that this is the way of discipleship. That this is the way of discipleship. He was not only showing them, this is how you will be saved, but this is how you will live. And yet the disciples take two steps back again. They still haven't learned. So first we see the journey forward for Jesus and his place in this world and how he will suffer and die at the hands of his enemies. And now Jesus would have to put his disciples in their place. If you have been following, notice that for each prediction that Jesus gives of his death and resurrection was followed by the disciples' failure. Peter tried to rebuke Jesus the first time he predicted it. The disciples got into an argument over who was the greatest the second time. And now, notice as James and John, the sons of Zebedee, the sons of thunder, how they split off from the disciples to catch up to Jesus on their walk so as to corner him, so as to speak to him privately. 
And they make a demand of Jesus. Talk about insensitivity or just being clueless. Were they not listening? Or were they purposely tuning out because what they heard didn't profit them? We don't know, but but if we were to judge based on our own experiences, uh, this is what we all do, isn't it? Especially when our spouses are speaking. Right? We're all guilty of this. Like when we ignore those sermons that we decide it doesn't relate to me or what I'm going through. Or purposely tuning out when the sermon is actually convicting and confronting us where we are at the moment. We just tune it out. Or ignore it as if no one is speaking or as if the God of the Bible is silent about our condition. We do this all the time. We can't stand in judgment over James and John. As they split off from the group and notice... Who else is excluded? Peter. Peter. They cut off Peter. Peter was part of this inner circle of uh, special disciples. It was Peter, James, and John that Jesus chose to go up with him onto the mount where he was transfigured. They were thinking as if they had to split the inheritance among themselves. And James and John decided to cut one out so they would have a greater share. So they cut Peter out. Poor Peter, he's always getting picked on. But that's not how it works, as they will soon find out. But you can see where their minds were. Their minds were on glory rather than the cross. Unfortunately, that's where the minds of most most Christians are today. Their minds are on glory, but not the cross on the way to glory. You can't get to glory without the cross. Perhaps they thought that since Jesus was going to Jerusalem, where the temple is, and as a king, he would have some royal ties. Or that they were on their way to the royal banquet of the Messiah, where he will be victorious after he overthrows the Romans. They were probably thinking he was going to take over, and it was time to restore the kingdom of Israel. So, they wanted the best seats in the house. If you have never been encouraged by this story, I hope you are now. Our Lord works in faulty and frail people. And this is a symptom found in every church. We want the glory, we want the status in the world without the suffering. Notice where their pride, envy, jealousy, and greed has led them. They came up to him and said, Teacher, we want for you to do for us whatever we ask of you. As if he was some genie, or as if he was a butler and they were his masters. What audacity on their part. What selfishness. Did they not just hear that Jesus was going to die? But this is how many people view Jesus. That he is just here to do what they please and that he is to obey them and they never consider that they are to obey him. But notice, demonstrating his gracious character, what was Jesus' response? What was his response? What do you want me to do for you? In the face of selfishness, 
He says, what do you want me to do for you? If it was myself, I probably would have told them to go kick rocks. Because listen to their demand. Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. And get this in Matthew's account, it was their mother who knelt before Jesus and asked Jesus of this request. That's a good mother for you, always looking out for her sons. But see, what they all got wrong is that they overlooked the cross and were thinking of his glory. They were thinking of the great wedding feast of the Lamb. And at this wedding feast, there will be a banquet. And usually at royal banquets, the one who sits on either side of the king was of the highest status next to the king. So their minds were on status. They wanted the place of honor and security. This may be one of the reasons why John was always sitting near Jesus. He wanted to secure the best seat for himself. Their minds were not on loving God, seeking to live for his glory, or serving their neighbors. They would much rather have lived above their neighbors to dominate and control them. But that's human nature, isn't it? That's human nature. We all want to dominate. We all want that authority. So what was Jesus' response to their request? Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. They were ignorant. In other words, he was asking, If you want the status, can you take on the responsibility that comes with it? So he asks them, Are you able to drink the cup that I drank, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Now he is not talking about the sacrament of the Lord's Supper or the sacrament of baptism here, though they both signify and point us to Jesus' death on our behalf and we are said to be baptized into his death. But in the Old Testament, the cup would at times symbolize blessing, but more than blessing, the cup here symbolizes judgment. It was a cup of judgment. Like in Jeremiah 25, the Lord told Jeremiah, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. And the baptism with which he will be baptized will also be one of judgment as baptism speaks of being overwhelmed or flooded with the waters of judgment as this was to depict his suffering and death that he will be plunged into on behalf of sinners. He is also overwhelmed with the prospects of this judgment that he asks his father, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me because he will drink this cup and he will be baptized in God's wrath and judgment against sin that we deserve. So when Jesus asked them this question, if they can take this on, he was expecting them to say, no, we're not able It's impossible for us to take on the judgment of God. But in their ignorance and self-confidence, how did James and John respond? We are able. Wow. What lack of self-awareness. What lack of self-awareness. 
We might read this in judgment, but really the Bible is a mirror of our own pride when it comes to this. We often say to ourselves, oh, we got this. This whole church thing, we got it all figured out. We read all the best how-to books. We've read all the, the strategies about how to grow a church or how to be a welcoming church. Well, we got this. Jesus, don't worry. We'll take care of the church while you're gone. Persecution? Bring it on. Bring it on. I don't, I don't even need the church. I can, I can take it on myself. Really? If you read ahead, you will see that as soon as Jesus gets arrested, they run for their lives and leave Jesus to drink the cup alone. So much for being able. But instead of correcting them, he affirms, you will. You will. You will drink of my cup and you will be baptized with my baptism. And this will come after he ascends into heaven and pours out the Spirit on them and they are given the enablement to do so. But their suffering will be different. The nature of their suffering will be different. They will not take on the sins of the world in judgment. Only Jesus can do that. But they will be called to share in his sufferings. James, he will be killed under Herod by the sword. And John will be imprisoned on the island of Patmos in old age. Now this is what Paul says was his desire to know him and the power of his resurrection and to share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. To put it simply, he is saying to them, you will suffer as I suffer. If the master suffers, what do you think the servants will go through? But, that doesn't mean you earn a place to sit at my right or my left. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Notice that. The closest seats to Jesus in glory is by grace. It is by grace. It is not based on anything you have done. Even becoming a martyr. For it is the Father's to grant to whom whoever he has prepared it for before the foundation of the world. You can't earn that place. That is why it's so detrimental to the Christian walk to have a martyr complex. To think that because we give up our bodies to be burned or to be shot is something we could check off on a list. Oh, I definitely have a spot in heaven now. And that becoming a martyr for martyr's sake, that will never earn a place in heaven. Never. And Jesus here is not saying he doesn't know who will be sitting there. It's not that he lacks knowledge as God. But once again, he doesn't tell them who's going to be sitting there because he's going to tell them what they should be concerned about. What they should be concerned about. It's not for them to know. Those who we would expect to sit at the right or the left hand of Jesus probably will not be there. 
And those who we least expect to be there may be there. We look through the annals of Christian history. In church history, we, we often say to ourselves, and this is in no way saying that we shouldn't read the teachers of old or those who have gone before us. We should. And read their stories. But we can look back and say, oh yeah, he's going to be right there. Right there in heaven, sitting right next to Jesus for all that he has sacrificed. But he is saying that that's not the case and that's not for us to know. That's just mere speculation. That is not what is important for you right now. He's telling them, get with the program. Listen to what I'm saying to you. Now, to break it up a little bit, you could imagine what would happen once the disciples got wind of this conversation. It says, when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. Uh, Not too long ago, they were arguing over who was the greatest. And so, in a way, they were doing this to win the argument. James and John went ahead of the, uh, the disciples to secure their spots. Uh, the other ten weren't mad at them for their lack of piety or their lack of uh, sensitivity. And the fact that they demanded something of Jesus right after he spoke of his suffering. They didn't have good intentions in their uh, anger. They were indignant at James and John because they were being sneaky and got to him first with the request. Because they all wanted those seats. They all wanted to sit at the right and left hand of Jesus. So we can't uh, cut uh, James and John out and say, oh, that, that was their sin. No, that was the sin of them all. They were all filled with pride. Now we see this in our children, don't we? You know, they get into some, the, the same kinds of arguments. Uh, they start off by having a discussion about who is going down the slide first. Right? Then the clever one makes his way, or her way, to the parents and asks, Can I go down the slide? Of course, he or she doesn't give the order of going down the slide that they wanted to go first. And you say yes. Then the rest of the kids get wind of it. And then there is a total meltdown of epic proportions. I hate to be the parent that says yes. First, whenever your kids ask you something, please investigate before you say yes. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Now he is speaking of the rulers of the Gentiles as a way of speaking of the rulers of the unbelieving world. It's a general term. He's not being racist or he's not segregating a group of people. He's just speaking of those who are unbelieving. And the leaders of Israel should know better than to rule as the Gentiles rule. But they were at this point. What he is doing is trying to make a distinction between how the world outside of Israel. For us that is the world outside of the church measures greatness. And how God measures greatness. See, their pride led them to fight over greatness and status. They were becoming heavy-handed like the rulers of the Gentiles. They were becoming like the the Caesars of the world. They were becoming like the Fidel Castros of the world, like the Stalins of the world, or the Chairman Mao's of the world. See, the world has dictators who are full of pride and want control over others. But he says, but it shall not be so among you. 
He says this to church leaders today as well. He says this to the church as well. You are not to be like them. See, they put themselves first. That is why their faces are everywhere. And this world is so obsessed with celebrity leaders. But you are to be different. You are to be different. And he makes, makes it clear here when he says, But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Now, I want to add a qualification to that. That is voluntarily. Okay? Voluntarily. Because as Paul says, we are not to become bond servants of men, but we are bound to Christ. First we're bound to Christ, then we bound ourselves as slaves to all. This would be an unpopular phrase these days, wouldn't it? That we are to be slaves of all. The last thing anyone would want to be is a slave, especially voluntarily. But if you want to measure greatness in God's eyes, the slave is the greatest. Greatness is not measured by status or class. Rather, it is measured by how low you are willing to go to serve. Now this confronts us because this self-centeredness and pride is present in every church and in every believer. In every believer. And our world is so preoccupied with self and status. We are so concerned with how we look and how the world views us. The church can be so preoccupied with the world accepting us that we compromise or bow to their ways or demands. And on the flip side, we can become like the world, prideful, heavy-handed with those whom we are called to serve, especially when things aren't going our way. We want to be regarded as significant and socially acceptable. So we get upset when the world rejects us. We're surprised when we see the world rejecting the church. Why? Because we've been trying so hard to be accepted and relatable that we compromise. We compromise both the message of the law and the message of the gospel. But my question is, when has the world ever accepted the church and her message? And I'm not talking about when church leaders in the church are full of pride and legalism on one end. And I'm not talking about when we are compromising on the other. When has the world accepted the church and the message? The proof is in the pudding, isn't it? Look at our major cities at the moment. In revolt. In rebellion. In rioting. In protesting. Over what? Over what? To save the lives of unborn babies. If you want to see human depravity, you turn on the nightly news. The evidence is there. 
The proof is in the pudding. And you're probably saying, well, Pastor, you're getting a little political there. No, I'm not getting political, actually. This is well within my bounds because in the Word of God it says, Thou shalt not kill. And when you look to the Westminster Larger Catechism, question 135, when it describes the duties, the duties of the Sixth Commandment, it says we are to preserve the life of ourselves and the lives of others. That's a duty. It's in the law. It's in the law. So to compromise the law because we want to be accepted by the world never works. It's not going to convert anyone. It's not going to convert anyone. Because compromising the law will lead to compromising the gospel. It will lead to compromising the gospel where we say to those who have had abortions, you are forgiven. In Christ. There's forgiveness. For all sin. But rather we are so concerned. Over position in the world. Because we don't want to lose followers. Or members in our churches. What does that come from? That comes from us. Wanting to be kings. In this world. We want to be. The center of attention. We want to be the rulers. Now the Corinthian church was going through a similar dilemma. Uh, They were filled with pride, envy, jealousy, greed, fighting over their gifts, their position and status. They wanted to become rich. They wanted to become kings at the expense of everyone else. Paul confronts them in this. Listen to this. He is being sarcastic here. Whoever said that sarcasm is a sin has never read Paul. Listen to this. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us you have become kings. And would that you did reign. So that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all. Like men sentenced to death. Because we have become a spectacle to the world. To angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake. But you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor, working with our hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Doesn't sound attractive, does it? Because the truth is, we'd all rather to be served rather than to serve. That is why we always need to come back to the Word of God to remind ourselves this is not the calling of Jesus. And this is not the way of Jesus. This call to become servants was embodied in Jesus. It was embodied in Jesus. And that is the point of this passage. We have seen his place in this world, his journey forward. Secondly, we have seen the place of his disciples and where they should be, as they should become slaves or servants. And now thirdly, we see the example of the servant. 
He would go on to say, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The Son of God from all eternity, the one who should have enjoyed the service of others, took on flesh to serve. If he, being the master, did, then we, being his servants, are expected to be. Why? Well, because you are no longer your own. You're no longer your own. You were ransomed, and you were bought with a price. And the price was his life. That was the way he served. He gave his life for us, and likewise we are called to serve him first, Above all else, and in that context, serve one another. Because he not only showed them and us the way of salvation, but also the way we are to live among each other. Look at how John puts it. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. May the church universally, Heed these words and apply them today. Amen.